individuals with anorexia, when you ask them, well, have you a target weight you're aiming for? There's never a weight that's low enough that they feel happy enough with. It's this continual pursuit of something that is unattainable. And so that's where therapy and treatment is so important. It's about trying to get them to accept that there's a real negative spiral happening there. And if they could move away from that and move on to other areas of their life, which would give them more fulfillment if it's social or family or academic or occupational, that they're the areas that really they should be putting all that energy into pursuing. Hello to all the amazing Heart to Healing listeners. I can't believe we've already come to the end of season three. I've absolutely loved all of your wonderful comments about the episodes. And just to know that it's been a real comfort for some of you going through your own struggles has felt incredibly rewarding. I feel like we've already got such a brilliant and inspiring community, and I really can't wait for that to expand every season. So summer has begun, and I know it's usually a time to rest, reset, and enjoy yourselves but I'd love to share a few more bonus episodes with you that I've recorded, which are too good to wait until the next season. So welcome to the Summer Specials. On today's Summer Special, we are joined by Professor Fiona McNicholas, a consultant in child and adolescent psychiatry. Her clinical interests are eating disorders, and I wanted to take the opportunity today to ask her about the differences between anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating and particularly how this disorder impacts children and adolescents. Having suffered from an eating disorder which started when I was about 12 years old, I'm always keen to learn more about how treatments are becoming more effective and the impact that early intervention can make. I was pleased to hear that the level of support needed for an eating disorder is now being recognised, but I think one of the biggest takeaways from the conversation is that we should not ignore that parents or close friends watching their children suffer with these disorders may need to be supported too. We're going to start by talking about eating disorders, and I'd love to know what are the diagnostic criteria for both anorexia and bulimia? Well, they've changed slightly over time, but fundamentally, Pandora, two main things, really. One of them is a way in which one person evaluates themselves on the basis of their body weight, image, or shape. And the second thing is becoming involved in behaviors that either restrict the amount of or create an imbalance between the amount of food eaten and the energy expended so that a young person or an adult may either lose weight or suppress their weight on an ongoing basis. And I guess as research and time has evolved, the two main diagnoses that you probably have heard of or most people have heard of and think about anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, there also has been a number of other disorders that we're aware of now that are quite impairing to individuals, although they less often come to clinical attention. And that's individuals who have a binge eating disorder or a newer type of disorder called ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. But the difference, going back to the main two between anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, really the big difference is that individuals with anorexia have lost weight relative to where they were in the beginning. Whereas somebody with bulimia nervosa, they may have an overvalued view of their body image. They may have concerns about gaining weight, but they engage in compensatory behaviors like vomiting or purging or excessive exercising or fasting. And their their body weight hasn't dropped significantly. And that purging will always follow a binge because, I mean, 
obviously with my history of say a restrictive eating disorder which I know evolves over time and evolves over the years I went from being severely anorexic and restricting all my food intake as well as excessively exercising to then maybe being less restrictive with my food but still excessively exercising but not binging regularly so it's then a question of well what category do you then put that in does it fall into a category or is it just classified as an eating disorder we're beginning to realize now before when somebody heard that there was any evidence of purging or laxative use or other medication use people initially might have associated that with bulimia or if there was any binges as part of the presentation and now we know that individuals with anorexia can indeed have some binge eating themselves and compensatory behaviors but I guess it's the balance between the two Pandora if you are repetitively binging as part of your presentation it's probably more likely to be bulimia nervosa whereas if you only occasionally binge but your predominant pattern of eating is restrictive and whether you have purging or not you know that's acceptable within the diagnostic criteria for anorexia and the other thing that's probably important to say is that probably a third of individuals who have anorexia nervosa move on to bulimia nervosa so you can see how the history you're describing there is very common of uh, individuals with different type of eating disorders and the reverse way is also true, although less common, maybe 15% of individuals who start off with the typical pattern of bulimia nervosa may go on to then significantly restrict their intake. And the frequency of binging goes down so much that actually they begin to lose weight as a result of the restriction. Yeah. And that's a very, very interesting point that a third of people with anorexia actually then do develop a binge eating issue. That's correct. Yeah. Over time. And do you think that's because you can only, those third of anorexics who then go on to start developing a binge issue, it's because you can, the body can only cope for so long with such a restrictive diet. Why do those two thirds of anorexics maintain the anorexia as opposed to developing the binging, do you think? I think it's a very interesting question and I think we don't know enough about it. So the first thing to say is that research into eating disorders is very, very difficult. There isn't a lot of it there. And you probably know yourself that part of the issue is that a lot of eating pathology and disordered eating in a very broad sense is present in the community and it doesn't come to the attention of clinicians until probably very late on in the clinical history. And so typically what you're seeing when somebody presents is they're very medically compromised. They've lost a lot of weight relative to where they were. They may not be underweight, but relative to where they started, they've lost a lot of weight and so you get involved in, in treating and encouraging and supporting that young person. So that history of a third going on to bulimia is in those cases where the person has been identified as having anorexia and you're following them up over time. Obviously, we've no idea whether somebody who develops anorexia and doesn't you know, get involved in a longitudinal study, we've no idea whether their anorexia remains true to that diagnosis or whether it shades into other sorts of difficulties including other problems like depression, anxiety, they're also part of the presentation. But going back to your idea about the body, what happens to the body is it's very unusual in individuals with anorexia because your body will try and obviously sustain life at all costs. So as you reduce the amount that you're eating, your basal metabolic rate goes down because it's trying to 
expend as little energy as possible. And so let's say a normal young adult female would require about 18 or 2,000 calories a day just for everyday activities, walking to the shops, upstairs, doing their work, cognitively stimulating their brain. If you reduce that to 1,000 calories a day, your metabolic rate will also go down, your heart rate will go down, your cognitive ability will go down, so that it tries to sustain all the essential organs at that lower weight. And for a person who doesn't have anorexia, typically, the biggest impediment to restricting their food intake is hunger. And so we will be driven to eat more food based on our hunger levels. But for some reason in individuals who have anorexia, when they've actually studied the level of hunger that they experience following eating very little, individuals with anorexia have a much lower internal proprioception of those hunger pangs. So they're not encouraged to eat by these central nervous stimuli that would occur in individuals that don't have anorexia. So it allows people continue with a very reduced calorific intake for much longer than other people who might start off dieting, but they're unable to continue dieting because the natural body's response of saying, hey, I'm hungry, feed me, feed me, this is dangerously low. We succumb to that and we start eating as a result of that. Yeah, it's a very interesting point, actually. And it's something that I've spoken about before in that your ghrelin and your leptin, your regulatory hunger hormones, etc., are all so mismatched that you're not actually in touch often with when you are hungry. So recovering is so challenging because people will say, oh, we eat intuitively. Well, if you've had an eating disorder, that can be incredibly challenging because you're so out of touch with what it means to be hungry and what it doesn't mean to be hungry. And and when you're satiated and you're full, quite often you bypass that because the fear kicks in of the restrictive pattern. Therefore, your mind saying, oh God, actually, you're going to restrict tomorrow, even if you're out of that cycle. I find it very insulting sometimes. I'll say to someone, oh God, I'm still really hungry. And they're like, you can't be hungry. I mean, you know, that was a huge meal. I mean, I'm so full. I can't, I can hardly move. And I'll be like, no, 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 I'm still hungry. And sometimes people are like, oh, well, do you think that's just something going on in your head rather than actually in your body? And and you do have to consciously check in with yourself. But that that can be very challenging in recovery, I think. And I think in some ways, you know, that idea of I'm still hungry, that if you've had a long period of time beforehand, feeling hungry, but negating that idea to yourself. You know, you're you're in the middle of having anorexia, you feel hungry and you're saying to yourself, no, I'm not hungry. I need to eat less than what I'm eating. So it becomes difficult for you to trust your own body sensations because for so long you have been actually trying to encourage yourself to believe the very opposite to what your body was telling you initially. And then initially, when you don't get after a while, when you don't get those cues anymore, when you start to feel them, they can be difficult to know, is this real or is this because I I know I should be eating because it's lunch hour? And the other thing you mentioned, Pandora, is when people say you eat intuitively, like we normally do eat in response to when our body needs it. But we're so driven socially also to eat at certain times, like lunchtime, who said, Lunchtime has to be one o'clock for everybody. You know, surely it depends on what time you get up at and what you were doing in the morning. But, you know, it becomes a norm that socially we're all meant to be eating at one o'clock. And equally, if you're going out for dinner with your friends and they say, okay, we're having dinner at six o'clock and suddenly you can't get the restaurant booked until nine o'clock, suddenly you have to eat the same amount of food at nine that you were planning to eat at six. So 
it, it is completely at odds with your body's normal physiological response to how much calories you've had during the day up to that point, and therefore whether you should or shouldn't feel a certain degree of hunger or, or fullness. And another interesting point you made was an anorexic's capacity often to just survive off fewer calories. And I've also heard it put in a way that you say, well, we're not, we, we can actually tolerate that pang of hunger and bypass that. And I think that often coincides with quite a determined streak in, in an anorexic's personality. But also it's been spoken about that anorexics can actually survive off fewer calories. Our, our metabolisms actually can just function at a much lower metabolic rate, as it were, to an average human. The difficulty with that is, you know, like when your body starts dropping your basal metabolic rate, and, and this is one of the difficulties with dieting, if you've reduced weight, your your normal daily calorie requirement will also reduce. And that means in order for you to continue to lose weight, let's say half a kilogram a week or whatever your target had been, and it's generally unhelpful, obviously, to be thinking like this. But if that was your thinking at that time, you now have to eat fewer calories the next week than you did the week before in order to achieve the same amount of weight loss. Because, you know, your body is actually requiring less just for day-to-day activity. So that's where the real worry is that it's like there's no amount that becomes a reasonable daily intake that'll make the person happy. It has to be less and less and less, no more than individuals with anorexia. When you ask them, well, have you a target weight you're aiming for? There's never a weight that's low enough that they feel happy enough with. It's this continual pursuit of something that is unattainable. And so that's where therapy and treatment is so important. It's about trying to get them to accept that there's a real negative spiral happening there. And if they could move away from that and move on to other areas of their life, which would give them more fulfillment, if it's social or family or academic or occupational that they're the areas that really they should be putting all that energy into pursuing. It's so hard, though, telling someone who's in the midst of an eating disorder, you just need to find a purpose. Because to me, when doctors used to say that to me, it was like incredibly insulting. And I was like, don't you think I've got enough going on? It's almost like you're insulting me by saying you've not got enough going on in your life. You need to find something important. You're selfish. You're self-obsessed. And I think that's one thing that I think people often mistakenly point the finger at anorexics and bulimics as being is just you're so selfish. That is such an unhelpful perspective to take because um, it's not at all within the person's even cognitive capacity at that time to think rationally. Like the more malnourished you become, the more rigid and fixed your brain is, not just in relation to your own body image and weight, but even if you were to show the person neutral puzzles or cognitive processes to do, they become very inflexible in the way they think. And so it's completely understandable that they're unable to say, well, actually, I'm unable to think of anything outside of this drive, you know, that focuses on body appearance, weight and shape, because that is their cognitive, you know, it's kind of like the nerve is only going for me to be at that point. And so really, it's about again, in therapy, building trust sufficiently with a young person to allow them, even without motivation to want to get better, for example, to allow them to put trust in you, their clinician, their therapist, to say, well, look, go with me a little bit on this journey and let's see if it will make any difference to how you're feeling. And that's a very scary place to be in. It's like asking somebody, 
I'm petrified of bees, for example. It's like asking me to sit in a room where there's a bee and not want to run out. And so if you put me in it with a beehive, it's like no way could you do it. And it is like that where, where you really need to work therapeutically with the individual you're working with to contemplate the idea that they might be willing to put on hold some of this intense anxiety, anxiety-driven thoughts about body image and weight and allow them look at what other areas that they might be able to affect some change in with a positive benefit. I absolutely agree. I think, as you say, as you find something that you really that really lights you up, for me, it's been this podcast, something that I feel really inspired about doing, something that I really, I feel gives me a sense of purpose. And it's very slow. And I think you've got to have a team of people supporting you who are incredibly patient, because when people say it's baby steps, I mean, it really is baby steps. And it's two steps forward, three steps back, five steps forward, four steps, you know, it is incredibly slow. And so to have a patient supportive network who surround you, I think is just absolutely crucial. Thinking about that, Pandora, in terms of, as you're describing, you know, the anxiety and fear about you being willing to move forward and trust your treating team. One of the things we're finding now with research is the treatment for individuals with an eating disorder, anorexia in particular, in general, they've been far more disappointing. You know, we would have liked to have made far more progress in this area over the years. But one of the areas that is exciting and where some of the stronger evidence base is coming from is the treatment of younger children and adolescents with an eating disorder. And that's where the treatment being used is very much a behavioral treatment called family-based treatment, where you empower the parents to take charge of refeeding their young person. And you're kind of inadvertently saying to the child, it won't matter what you think, we're doing this and you just have to go along with what we're doing. So it's like a child who's dead scared of doing something and the parent saying, trust me, I'm doing it. But even if you can't trust me, we're doing it anyway. So the parents take charge and the, the young person, despite their anxiety, is desensitized towards it. And they are refed on the basis of the parents' insistence and support in a very, you know, supportive, non-judgmental way. And that has led to good outcomes. And it may be that part of the difficulties that we're experiencing with older adolescents and with young adults is because the treatments, understandably, are very much more individually directed because the adult and the older adolescents have autonomy that is not given to the younger child that it's about how do you get them? How do you push them towards that step if they're so frightened to do it themselves? That is a great system, I think, because it, it eliminates that choice. And I think often when you're, as you alluded to earlier as well, when your brain is in such, as it were, a mess because it's so starved and deprived of nutrients that it can't operate in a rational, functional way, if you're having to then be confronted with a choice of what you eat or what you don't eat, by default, you're just going to repeat the same pattern. So getting yourself out of that pattern becomes even more challenging the more starved you are and the more crazed you are. So to hand that over to a parent, to me, would be a game changer. But you then have to rely on a parent who is incredibly stable, non-judgmental, and doesn't make the, the sufferer feel at all ashamed about where they're at and at what pace they can move forward. That's where the relationship between the carer and the clinicians is also so crucial because 
We know again from the literature that the care burden of caring for a loved one with an eating disorder is far greater than caring for somebody, let's say, who has schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And I think, again, you know, in the past, historically, eating disorders were very much trivialized as a woman's disease, as a social disease, as not a real disease. And therefore, the parents and parent and partners, carers, parents, whoever, looking after or living or loving that person, the level of support they needed was also not recognized. And I think increasingly now we're beginning to realize that particularly, again, for the younger adolescent and child, you know, the focus in supporting the parents is very, very real and very important. But then as the young person grows older, it's a new level of support and a different support because if you're an adult living with your parents, your parents will still need the support because they're interacting with you every day. They're seeing your ups and downs. They're nervous about are they interacting in the right way that's going to be supportive and, as you say, not make you feel more ashamed or guilty. If they're your partner, they also, you know, need to kind of be supported in that way. So I think going forward with adult treatments, probably the the need for providing additional support to the significant other that the individual adult has will become increasingly important and needs to be there for a long time. And that runs into the difficulty of services not being available for the acute phase, while services therefore will be very strange to provide this ongoing support over time. I mean, I'm curious because a lot of girls who have bad relationships with food often have a poor relationship with a parent. Certainly in my experience from talking to people, it's often quite a fraught, fractious relationship with their mother. That might be a challenge there. I mean, I don't know what you think about that. Well, I think that, again, if we go back historically to the origins of eating disorder, no more than the origins of autism, people were very quick to blame the family. And what we realize now is that when an individual has an illness, whether it's cancer or anorexia, it changes the dynamics of the parenting. And obviously, each parent brings their own parenting history to them, to their parenting of their children. So how I was parented by my mum and dad will affect how I now parent my own children. And parenting is a hard job, but if you throw into the spoke a serious illness, be it anorexia or be it cancer, you're going to create a change in that system, that family system. So that depends on whether I'm lucky enough to have a partner who's co-parenting with me, whether we get on, and whether that partner also has had good parenting experiences themselves. And so then it goes down to the interaction between the two people. Inevitably, there'll be times where that gets inflamed and lead to interactions that you later on regret you didn't have, but they can be repaired over time in therapeutic work or just upon reflection. And I think part of the blaming that the literature did on parents and saying it was the mother-child dynamic that contributed to it, I mean, obviously, if there's a problem there and there is an ongoing difficulty in the relationship. Now you have two difficulties rather than one. But it doesn't assume that the mother-child parenting caused the eating disorder no more than maybe it was maintaining it or making it difficult for the young person to kind of get out of that, that they were responding in some maladaptive way to it. So I think it is difficult. And I think we know, irrespective of whether at times in certain situations there definitely was more a causative model. In terms of helping, it's just important 
to move forward with, well, what can we do about it now, rather than constantly revisit the fact that, you know, you were the reason why I became unwell in the first instance. But it's more about, well, how can I get out of where I am now and how can you help me? And how can we change our interactions if they have been unhelpful? This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the and partnership's belief in the power of and, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the and partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. So what are the other treatment options available for people with anorexia and bulimia? So starting off, most of anorexia have the peak age of onset is 16 to 18 year olds. So when you're thinking and you want to, you know, engage in treatment early on, if you're lucky enough that you're you're identified, self-identified or by others and you come to services. So for anorexia nervosa in young people, the treatment of choice is, as I described, that very behavioral family-based treatment approach. Now, as the young person gets that little bit older, older adolescent or into young adulthood with anorexia nervosa, the treatment is not as clear that there's a very single evidence-based treatment. It's a combination of either interpersonal treatment, some CBT, cognitive behavioral type work, or the Maudsley method, which again is is an interpersonal type of intervention. And so that would be the treatment of choice there. When you're looking at individuals who might have bulimia nervosa, again, children benefit from the family-based approach, but it is less clear how effective that is. And so early on, you might be thinking, well, cognitive behavioral work would be very helpful as well. But certainly in adulthood, cognitive behavioral therapy would be considered as one of the first line treatments for adults with bulimia nervosa. And it's the same treatment for binge eating disorder, which occurs at a much higher frequency in men than in women. I mean, people typically think that eating disorders are the prevalence of, you know, females. But increasingly, we know that there are many men and boys out there with eating disorders that don't feature as much in the research that's being done. And they also don't feature as much in clinical services on account of maybe the stigma of attending. But when you do community surveys, you begin to realize that actually the previously held idea of 10 to 1 females to males is not as high as that anymore. It may be much lower, like 6 to 7 to 1. And certainly in pre-pubertal children, about four to one. So for every four girls, there will be one boy. But binge eating disorder, again, would be, you know, kind of 50% maybe men and and women. And the treatment for that would be cognitive behavioral uh, approaches as well. And the only other thing to add is in the last two, bulimia and binge eating disorder, there is a role for medication. 
So there are two types of medications that are found effective, usually in addition to the therapies. And that would be uh, an antidepressant, fluoxetine, in higher doses than you'd usually use for depression. And then the other thing is a stimulant medication has been found to reduce the impulsivity. You know, it's what you would give to somebody who has ADHD. And it works, well, the idea behind it is they think it works on reducing impulsivity. And binging is typically something that people would report. They, they impulsively engaged in binging. And then once they started binging, they felt unable to stop. So um, there's a growing evidence base that maybe amphetamine, which is licensed for uh, bulimia nervosa, you know, might be effective. So they're kind of, you know, the treatments. And the other one, of course, to say is supportive clinical practice, especially supportive clinical management. So going to somebody where they're kind of not focusing on the eating pathology as such, but they're monitoring progress and uh, it's more symptom management. That is found to also be helpful. In terms of if you don't have access to private healthcare, and as we know, it's incredibly hard to get help on the NHS. The wait lists are huge. What efforts are being made to change that? The first thing is uh, to acknowledge the big gap. It's good that now we're recognizing that uh, there's a paucity of services for the individual and their families. And I think media, you know, is, is important in that. The development of the support organizations and the fact that governments are funding those as well to deliver a service is very good because they will continue to advocate for more and better services and indeed for inclusion of individuals with eating disorders in the creation of new services. So I think the support organizations uh, like BEAT in um, the UK and BodyWise in Ireland, you know, are very good. The development in Ireland and in the UK of specialist eating disorder services is very welcome because the more you train clinicians in an evidence-based treatment, the more effective your outcomes will be. And that also is so important in generating hope in young people who have an eating disorder is to realize actually, yes, it may take a long time to recover, but you can and do recover. And that means people will be more likely to come to services in the expectation that they'll make a difference and that they will uh, have a recovery from it. So specialist services, outpatient, they're predominantly outpatient treatment. Specialist services are, are very, very important. And then there's a tiny minority of services that need to be developed for inpatient management when the young person is so medically unwell or where all other treatments in the community have failed and where you feel it really is important you know, to kind of um, intensify the level of treatment for the individual. And that would include a lot of group work as well. So specialist inpatient units are helpful. But there's still an awful long way to go, not just for eating disorders, Pandora, but also for mental health in general. I mean, depression, anxiety, OCD, ADHD for children, child services are still demand far exceeds the, the availability and the same for adult psychiatry services as well. What is the current recovery rate for, I mean, it's so hard to quantify, isn't it? I mean, it's so random because what is recovery? I mean, it's a, it's not a clean trajectory and, and does one ever fully, fully recover? But what are the recovery rates in general for eating disorders, if you could take us through, if you know? Um, and again, what you've said is true, you know, is how do you define recovery? Uh, you know, what's quality of life to the individual, given society's obsession with body image and weight, given the uh, 
understanding that already as a nation, as every nation, you know, we, we've moved up. The mean BMI is higher than it was before. So, you know, what's what's the new norm? But notwithstanding all of those issues that complicate recovery, the longitudinal studies that have been done, you know, when they followed up, we'll say, cohorts of individuals, they talk about a third, a third fully recover, a third have ongoing issues with eating concerns and maybe body image concerns. And these at times may deteriorate at times of stress. So you may have good quality of life, but you lose your job and you may respond to that stress by restricting your intake. And for a period of time, you become at risk of being preoccupied by that negative cycle again. And then the last third, sadly, are a group where they may continue to weight suppress and to restrict their intake in a very rigid way. And some of those sadly have the worst outcome, which is death either from medical complications or death by suicide as, as a response to it. Now, it should be such an urgency to us as clinicians to make sure that we're increasing awareness all the time so that we're intervening earlier and earlier because we know that prognosis is linked with earlier detection and aggressive treatment in the beginning, that if you can get to services early on, and have a good enough service where the person is medically re-nourished, then the likelihood of outcome is is much better. And also, eating disorders often go hand in hand with anxiety and depression. And we know as well, if you can improve those, and there, there are much more effective treatments for that, that also is linked with a good prognosis. So I think whilst what I've just said to you might be depressing to your listeners, I think what you have to take as optimistic is that podcasts like your own that are increasing public awareness of the possibility of eating disorders in young people and the realization that there are effective treatments there, although not as good and as available as we'd like, they still do exist. It therefore means that outcomes can be much better than the literature has reported on so far. I also think that your point um, on nipping it in the bud early is something that I definitely witnessed at school so at 14 I had there were three of us I wouldn't I just you know you always remember kind of very poignantly the moment where three of us definitely had restrictive eating issues in my year and two of the girls got very very intense help very quickly and as you say they nipped it in the bud and they're now living lives which aren't they haven't had you know, seamless trajectories by any means. But for me, I was festered along for much, much longer and it was able to get much more of a grip and became more chronic and and long, long standing. So I do think that's another really, really useful point to make is that as soon as you get a whiff that someone's suffering with an eating disorder, it's to get them off to treatment ASAP, however minor it might seem. And And that requires us to work very much on stigma. First of all, the person who has eating disorder, you know, may be ashamed or embarrassed. And the stigma seems to be, you know, maybe more present in those with bulimia or binge eating disorder, and also maybe more present in, in men and in transgender individuals. So reducing stigma is very important and making sure our services also don't stigmatize those who have heavier weights or who have larger bodies because you know, there's a lot of emphasis talking about, you know, the dangers of obesity and the risk factors and 
media pressure to be slim and certain weights, that if you are somebody who has had a heavier body weight and you develop anorexia and you're still within the range of the BMI that would be considered normal, you may be dismissed from eating disorder services as, well, your weight is normal, you know, what's wrong with you? And that underlies the fact that this individual is still suffering significantly with trying to cope with a number of issues by restricting their their intake. And so I think we really have to work hard as a society and as clinicians on making sure we don't in any way increase stigma. I could talk to you for hours about this, but I know there's a new diagnosis at the moment you alluded to earlier, which is ARFID. Yes. So will you tell us about this and, and what the diagnostic criteria for that are? Well, when we diagnose things as clinicians, we use something called the DSM. And, you know, that's been in existence since the 1980s. And every couple of years after a lot of research, they change the criteria because they kind of better fit. And over that period, the most recent one, you know, which is a long time ago now, really, in some ways, it was 2013. The DSM-5 included ARFID as a new eating disorder, and it stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And it describes individuals where food intake is restricted, okay, in the same way anorexia restricts their food intake. But there is not a drive to restrict the food intake based on weight, shape, or body image. But there are other reasons why the individual restricts their intake. And although it's not part of the diagnosis, they kind of at the moment are thinking a lot of them fall into three main categories. So one of them is just the person has a very low interest in food anyway. They don't eat that much. And that's where really they kind of eat more based on its breakfast, lunch and dinner. And they don't really eat outside of that. And if their activities increase for any reason, whether it's a, a an infection or whether it's a ski holiday or whatever, they don't necessarily eat more because of that. And therefore, they might lose weight. So they have a lack of interest in food. And that can occur as well in depression where, you know, you're you're so depressed, you don't have an appetite and you don't eat. So you don't want to lose weight, but you just don't eat. The second group is those that have sensory difficulties. And so they don't eat certain foods based on the taste or the smell or the look of them. So it may be that anything that you have to chew, they find unpalatable or maybe even aversive. It may be painful or there may be a noxious smell to something and they avoid any oranges or something like that. And the third area is where somebody has had some kind of phobic or an aversive response. If I've been eating chicken and I choke on a little um, bone that's in the chicken and I vomit, I then start to fear eating chicken after that. And so I don't eat any more chicken. But then I worry about fish and I don't eat any fish. And then I worry about maybe meat because there might be some bones in the meat and I don't eat that. And so gradually my fear expands to a number of different foods so that I end up eating very little in the end. Now, what must happen is all of us, you know, maybe don't like one particular food, but ARFID is present when there's either weight loss or failure to gain weight as a child or where there's nutritional deficiencies linked with it. So let's say you're eating, you know, such a restrictive amount of food that you don't have multivitamins in your diet and and you're low in many of the trace elements or the vitamins, or it leads to significant social impairment. So a child who might only eat McDonald's, but nothing else, as they're growing older, they're not able to eat at school. They're not able to eat socially with their friends. They may not be able to go on sleepovers. 
And so that might cause significant distress, not to do with their weight or, or nutrition, but on account of um, socialization. So that would end up being called ARFID. And the treatment for ARFID depends on whether it's one of those three main areas, the sensory, the aversive, or the loss of interest. And it very much follows kind of a, a behavior or a cognitive behavioral treatment. And sometimes you need uh, nutritional supplements. Right, because there's obviously a fine line between, say, someone who is recovering from anorexia and has a fear of certain foods for the reason that they have labeled them in their mind as bad foods versus someone with ARFID who would genuinely have a real fear of that food for the sake of that food and it wouldn't be associated with weight gain. Yeah, and sometimes Pandora is very hard because if, let's say, I have ARFID based on sensory issues, you know, foods that are higher in fat will have a different sensation and a taste than foods that are, let's say, higher in carbs. And so it may well be that I restrict all my foods that are high in fat and therefore do lose weight. And if you don't ask the questions carefully, the clinician might misattribute that to a wish to lose weight and a fear of fatness, which actually wouldn't be the case. And the other kind of group that isn't an eating disorder as such, but again, it just lets you see how the clinical diagnoses are kind of hard at times. Somebody who restricts all their eating to just eating healthy foods, like I might only eat organically grown foods with no pesticides, that might be based on health reasons. You know, sometimes the distinction is, well, is that anorexia? Because linked with healthy food is this idea that weight gain is unhealthy. And therefore, if you misattribute the healthy pursuit as opposed to the weight losing pursuit, somebody with this orthorexic type of presentation might be misconstrued as somebody who has anorexia. Absolutely. And orthorexia is a term that's becoming increasingly thrown around in quite a sort of nonchalant way. Oh, well, she's got orthorexia. Yeah. And as you say, that is absolutely reliant on, on the diagnosis and, and the skill of the practitioner to accurately diagnose yeah. what they are suffering from. There is something I use, Pandora, I don't know if it's helpful in thinking about it. I refer to it as BBI. I mean, we're very familiar with BMI. So I, I kind of say to clinicians when I'm teaching, when they're thinking about, you know, somebody comes in with weight loss into a hospital setting, for example, if they think BBI. So the first thing is to ask, you know, what is the behavior? So the behavior might be the person isn't eating enough, or it might be that the person is overeating, you know, binging at nighttime, or it might be that um, the person is eating enough, but they're doing an awful lot of exercise. So that's the behavior. The second B is the belief system. Why is it that they're engaging in that behavior? So if you go to the first one that the person isn't eating enough, are they not eating because they want to lose weight? Or are they not eating because they're afraid that food will make them sick? And then the last one is impairment, the I. As a result of both the belief and the behavior, is there any negative consequences for the person? And obviously, if there isn't, you know, they're medically well, they're having good quality of life, you know, there's no disorder present. But if there is an impairment, whether it's they're medically unwell or they're not able to engage with their friends socially or they're not able to spend any time with the family because they have prioritized exercise to the point of spending 10 hours every day in the gym. Well, then that impairment constitutes a disorder and that helps differentiate between anorexia, bulimia, ARFID, orthorexia, exercise addiction, and many of the other terms that are used interchangeably. 
And the reason why diagnosis is so important is it leads on to the right treatment. I'd love to know your thoughts on why you think eating disorders are becoming more common. And as you, again, alluded to earlier, amongst men as well as women. Two things. The first thing is, is it really becoming more common or are, are we more aware of it? So that's the first thing to consider, that it may just be that we're talking more about it and um, it's out there in the open. But And I think there's a little bit of that, but I think in reality, there probably is a true increase in prevalence. The reasons for that probably have a lot to do with, I would imagine, culture, social media, Western influences. And I say that because there is some evidence that countries where there wasn't that degree of Western influence or social media or the regular media as in television had a very low instance of eating. In fact, if you take the Fiji Islands before television, there was no eating disorder symptomatology when they did community studies. They asked people about, are you happy with your weight and shape and you do anything about it? And, uh, you know, young people would say there was no problems. And after the introduction of television and they repeated those surveys, there was a significant increase in eating concerns. And I think as you look at the kind of the transition of uh, eating disorders, you know, it's now where studies exist. It's now apparent in Asian countries, even in some African countries, maybe with higher affluence where food scarcity isn't an issue. And so I think we're beginning to realize that it's present in many cultures where thin body ideal has been presented to us as something we should aspire to. And again, going back to why more recently, historically, again, with media, we were just left with magazines or billboards or television ads. So occasionally you saw them. But now with the mobile phone and with social media, it's there constantly where we're bombarded with these images and bombarded also with a a diet industry that wants us to go on diet after diet because it's a multi-billion dollar industry. They have a conflict of interest there also. And the other problem is now with social media young people, they're constantly comparing themselves to other people. And of course, the easiest way to compare yourself at a surface level is body physique. And um, maybe it has been shining an unhealthy comparison that has favored weight and shape more than other attributes like intelligence or sensitivity or kindness. And why it's happening in boys and men, I think also if you look at the media and how adverts for men has changed, you know, before women predominated the ads and the fashion magazines, and now increasingly we're beginning to see men with uh, six packs and going to the gym and with upper body torsos. People are talking a lot more about men, even cosmetics and cosmetic surgery in men has increased significantly in the latter years. And I think that is because of the media representation of what an ideal body image for men and women is like. Well, Fiona, I know you're pressed for time, so I really can't thank you enough for your time and for your expertise and for all the work you're doing and the teaching. It's incredible. And you're going to help so, I mean, gosh, so many people and also transform the landscape of healthcare and and eating disorders. Well, Pandora, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you and absolutely continue with the great work that you're doing. It's very much needed. The more, the better. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing pod. 
You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.